Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon, thrilled to be back with you here at the Buzz and back with a good one tonight. A bit later on, I've got an exclusive preview of this Sunday's exciting finale of America's Next Great Restaurant with Chef Lorena Garcia, who serves as one of four judges on the series. But first up tonight, a man whose magnificent music has been a part of our lives for some three decades now. Best remembered for his still-covered classic 1984 smash, Missing You, rocker John Waite has just released his 10th studio album, Rough and Tumble, and I was thrilled to welcome him here a couple weeks ago to talk about the new record and to reflect on one of pop music's most enduring careers. So uh, let's let's kind of set the table here, get the boring stuff out of the way. Let's. Uh, where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. I was born in Lancaster, England. It's in the northwest. It has a castle, a river. It's the oldest town in Lancashire. Real kind of a beautiful place. A lot of uh, early buildings, you know, there's the, the local church, the Priory Church, is, the foundations are a thousand years old. But I went to art wow. school there, and there's a university there. It's, it's pretty hip. And, 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 and I've never been to England, so I don't know, but where is this in relation to London or Liverpool or, you know, oh, the places that we know? It's 223 miles from London. I, I left when I was about 18, then started playing in bands in London, and... Uh, it's just an epic story, really. I mean, it's just a long, involved <laughs> yeah, uh, story. You know? uh, was music always it for you? I mean, was it always clear that that was the direction you were heading in? Well, no, I was. I, was, I went to art school for four years, so I was going to be a painter. But I realized halfway through, music was faster. Gotcha. And, uh, <laughs> even, yeah, and even though I wasn't such a great painter, I had a style of my own, and I had a, a direction, and I could illustrate stuff really well, and I was into line drawings and all that stuff. But I thought I'd stood more of a chance doing something that mattered if I became a songwriter. Gotcha. And worked with the limitations of what I had. I thought if it was fallible, it would have some humanity in it and therefore maybe have some meaning. So I just took a shot on being a singer, really, a, a writer, a bass player, actually. Well, looking back, that was certainly the right call, I think. Uh, well, it's been a complex life. It's been an adventurous life. It's been on the, on the edge most of it. There is a lot to be said for, you know, disappearing into the countryside and having a couple of kids and being, uh, sure. you know, happy. 
But uh, the road was kind of, that had me hooked. You know, I, I honestly thought when I was 17 or 18 that I was going to get married to my girlfriend and try and live on the outskirts of Lancaster in a farmhouse somewhere and just disappear. <laughs> that was my dream, and I got the opposite, really. You know? Do you still daydream about that uh, from time to time? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I actually went home after the babies. I bought a small cottage in the Lake District and had no intention of ever making music again. It just came back to me. About six months later, I got married, settled down, and then the phone rang. You know, every time you think it's safe to go back in sure. the water. You know? Sure. What's the old thing? Uh, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans? Yeah, exactly. So I was focusing on hanging pictures on the wall, and somebody in America was focusing on getting me to make the record. So it's weird how things go on. As a child coming of age in the 60s and having been born in England, the easy assumption is that the Beatles rocked your entire existence. Is that fair? Oh, totally. It annihilated everything that had gone before or was about to come for the next 10 years. You know, it was gigantic and huge. But I, I was deep into cowboy music as a little boy. I thought okay. uh, Marty, Marty Robbins was just, you know, the man in black, really. Wow. To me. Yeah, it was huge cowboy songs, El Paso. You know, I was wearing a cowboy outfit, so he just went right alongside it. You know, Davy Crockett and all those. The American dream was kind of instilled in me very, very early. And playing in the fields around where I was brought up in a cottage, you know, that was kind of like a five-year-old's version of America. <laughs> so it was just a matter of time before. It was a one-two punch, really. Cowboys on one hand and rock and roll on the other. So I decided I was gonna. Yeah, I decided I was gonna come to America and see what would happen. And uh, talk to me about coming to America and how the how the reality stacked up with what you had idealized oh, in your mind. It was amazing. I, I came over in '74 and joined a band in Cleveland, and I was in Cleveland for about five months. But my greatest wish was to see America and see the cities there and hear the music, the myth of America with the reality of touring, the clubs. You know, the girls, Playboy magazine, Shoeborg beer. <laughs> and it's an endless list of things that you might think are fairly obvious, but sure. 21, 20, whatever, it's big. And I really wanted to see it. And Cleveland just, it was an amazing experience for me to, to, to meet and deal with Americans and be the Englishman abroad kind of thing. I mean, they, didn't, they haven't seen anything like me at all. So it was. I was dressed like a modern, had hair down to my past my shoulders and you know I looked like I just stepped out of Kensington and there I was in Cleveland but it was very important how things panned out it was very important that I did that and I went back to England kind of like um, maybe 30 40 pounds lighter and really just paying dues left right and center but I think I stepped into a situation that turned into the babies at that point but I knew about America, and I wanted to get back there, and I wanted to take a band wow. with me. You know, you mentioned the babies, and, and uh, a lot of people I don't think knew at the time that you exploded with Missing You, and, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know now that you were actually in this band, The Babies, for uh, I know, it's not five or six years no, before people, you broke out on your own. Yeah, people don't put it together. I, I have no idea why that would be, because Missing You was so big, and yes. I'm sure all the press was trying to um, associate the babies with my solo thing. And I'm sure that the old record company was trying to sell records by the babies and 
ride along on the coattails of the success of that. Absolutely. But it didn't seem to register. People, the uh, Mission U, the success of Mission U, has a, has a kind of reality of its own. It's, it's the biggest kind of um, force that I've come across in my life it, uh, after love and sex. I mean, it was Mission U. It was too big. It was bigger than the air that I was breathing. You know, it seemed to annihilate everything around it. So I look back on that, and that's probably why people didn't associate the past with the then present. Yeah. It was that big. You know, it's still a massive <laughs> song. You know, it, it seems to overshadow everything, really. You know, uh, I was talking to, uh, a couple years ago, I was talking to a great singer-songwriter called Brenda Russell. Uh, she had a great hit in the late 80s called Piano in the Dark, and, and you know, it was one of those... It was one of those songs that kind of overshadows everything else in her discography, and and you have a very similar thing with Missing You. I mean, you know, not to say that you haven't had success in, in other ways and, and uh, at other levels, but, you know, that song kind of towers over everything else in your in your uh, canon, so to speak. And, and I'm wondering if, if, if that can be as much blessing as it is curse. Well, no, I mean, if without it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Sure. And it's allowed me to make some very obscure records along the way that I wanted to make. I mean, after Bad English, I went off and started to record singer-songwriter records that were much more lyric-driven and dark. And um, I was always capable of doing that. I mean, it, did, it, it was in the babies. That's probably why the babies did well. It had sort of substance. And there was a lot of that in Bad English. But when I left Bad English, it was time to really take the gloves off. And I, I kind of went in that direction. But I probably wouldn't be able to survive making those records without missing you. You know, a uh, passport to, uh, to go somewhere else. <laughs> so tell me where the hell that song came from. Uh, well, I was trying to finish the record. The engineer was mixing the album, and I knew we hadn't got a single. I was working on some songs, and I heard this instrumental piece of music and I asked if I could sing over it and I sang over it and it all came out I mean it was like verse chorus verse chorus I, I kind of stopped going into the second verse I was kind of breathless I, I kind of it all hit me at once just how far I'd come out on a limb but it all rhymed <clears throat> and it all made sense it was just out of the blue really but I write a lot of songs like that but I think in that particular moment I was um I was speaking for a lot of people, even though it was by myself. Just one of those godly moments where it all comes together and and, yeah. and magic is created. Yeah, I think if you don't know what you're doing, then you do know what you're doing in some way. And I try to approach songwriting like that. <laughs> I keep stacks of notebooks and blank paper everywhere, but I very rarely use any any of it. And of all things, I use the iPhone. There's a there's a an app in the iPhone that's like a legal pad, and you can tap in lyrics. And sure, absolutely, yeah. But I use that, and um, all the thing about having a Mont Blanc pen and having a black binder with, you know, <laughs> looking up into the stars and writing what's deep in your heart is absolute bullshit. You know, it's just pretentious <laughs> crap. And when you're on a bus, surrounded by strangers, trying to get from A to B, somebody will say something or do something, and there it is. That's where it lives. It lives on the street. You know, I've often believed and said that 1984 is the greatest year for pop music in the history of recorded sound. And, you know, you were a major player in all of that. I mean, Missing You went to number one in late September of that year. And in the top ten that same week were Drive from the Cars, uh, What's Love Got to Do with It, Tina Turner, Stevie Wonder's I Just Called to Say I Love You, Ghostbusters, 
George Michael's debut single was just coming into the top 40. Uh, the, you know, the breakthrough single from an unknown Irish band called U2 was climbing up the chart. I mean, every one of these songs are still, to this day, considered classics. Yeah. Uh, were you present enough back then to understand that something special was truly happening all around you? And, and what do you think about now when you look back on that year? Well, I, you know, I was living in New York City, and I'd gone there two years previously to start my life again after the babies. And then I'd given up and gone back to England, got married, quit for six months, then came back to New York City. But I was plugged into the clubs and the energy of the East Coast, and I was aware of everything that was going on. I was part of it. I was on the barricades there, you know, it was even my people still are. You know, black people were still on the edge of things. Rick James couldn't get arrested, but he had hit records, couldn't get onto MTV. And if you had black friends, you took them into a a white club, it was kind of like, oh, he's got a black friend. (laughs) God forbid you had a black girlfriend. That's how different things were. You know, you're looking back at Madonna jumping up and down, you know, Singing borderline. I mean, it, it, no question. It, you know, it was. It, it's just a whole different world. You bet. But the real black stuff, the rap, was just around the corner, and there was an amazing amount of black artists forging music in New York City. So I look back at it. My version of the eighties is dark and strong and weird. <laughs> and but I knew all the pop stuff that was going on later about George Michael. You'd hear it if you walked into a club to be playing a little bit of that, or they might be playing some Adam and the Ants kind of thing, and you name it, they were playing it. And and some of that really just jars me. But for me, it was about art, and it was about the street and clubs, and, and sure. when people look at the 80s with that much disdain, as they do, they're probably looking at the more... Which is ridiculous. Well, you know, there was a few acts there that were crap, that were huge sellers, that were had weird clothes on them, were trying as hard as they could to sound like the police. But, you know, I mean, it's 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 all subjective, isn't it? Sure, of, of course it is. But, I mean, you know, if, if you look at 1984 specifically and the the artists who who really made their mark on that year, I mean, uh, Madonna, Prince, George Michael, Michael Jackson, Culture Club, Phil Collins, John Waite, Tina Turner made a huge comeback. I mean, you know, right. these artists couldn't be more different, and they were all massively yeah. successful together. Yeah, I love that. That's New York to me. You see, that experience must have been happening in L.A. and London, but I wasn't aware of that. When I was making the album, I made that album in L.A., but I was going to, like, punk clubs and after-hours bars that were, like, driven by, you know, real painters and and real weird guitar players and people that were trying to sort of cut into a different world, as well as you 2 playing in the background, you know. Like I said, my, my my experience of the 80s was was just, uh, it was a cauldron of creativity, really. <laughs> but, you know, you get these, you know, you get VH1 specials and you get some really bad comedian. Sure, of course. The comedian, and he'll say a couple of words about, he had to change his shorts three times a day because that song was so good. And then, you know, that's supposed to be funny and stuff. And then... <laughs> You get some girl band that haven't had a hit single for 20 years. They flash onto them and they talk about the 80s. You know, it's the most undignified bullshit fucking crap. Of course, of course. But people, people, that's, it's just entertainment. When you look back at the past, you either got it, you didn't, you know. It's easy to dismiss stuff. I mean, I could dismiss half of the bands from the 80s. But the other half, I thought, were fucking unbelievably great. Listen, you can do the same thing with the 90s, with the 60s, with, you know, yeah, exactly. any decade, any year you choose, you can do that with. Absolutely. It's, it depends who's writing 
the article is holding the pen. Really. <laughs> You know, uh, talking about Missing You, it's one of those songs that has uh, spawned dozens of covers. I mean, Tina Turner, speaking of her, she did a great version years ago. Uh, this new kid, Tyler Hilton, covered it a couple years ago. Uh, do, you, do you cringe when you hear other voices doing that song, or are you flattered by it? Tina Turner moved me because I was a huge Tina Turner fan, and still am. I just did one of her songs on my new record. And I always listen to Tina's stuff when it comes on the radio. And I think the stuff with Ike was uh, incredible. Although I know she, that she, that that's a painful thing for her. Sure. But some of the stuff from the Ike days was really just monster, you know. But she's always had it. And hearing Rod do it, you know, Rod Stewart, I mean, that was interesting because, you know, I used to listen to Rod on the jukebox back in Lancaster singing Maggie May. Absolutely. Years on, you know, he's singing Missing You. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it really is kind of a thrill to hear that somebody thinks you're that good that they do one of the songs. And you know, it just it, it it proves the I don't know the 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 timelessness of that song and the timeless quality that every great song carries with it. That's the point, you know. It's trying to write something that you'll be talking about in twenty years. When we come out and the band plays live, we do I think we do three baby songs. But the last time we played, we we finished the set with two baby songs. The entire press stood up. So, I don't know. There's those songs, as you say, in my canon. I call it a set list. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, really, I don't, you know, I mean, there's those songs I've always shot for those songs. When you read the press, there's like Band of the Month, you know? You bet. There's some band that you won't be seeing again on you the bet. cover of a magazine. And the other player just got out of jail, and it's that, that's, you know, that's great. God bless them. But you will never see them again. And oh, they will make a second record next year, in three years, <laughs> and the press won't like them. And uh, I think it's great. It's interesting. It makes it worth buying a magazine. You know, uh, it's so funny you, you talk about that. You know, and nowadays the music business tends to have a, a one-and-done mentality. You know, the first album goes oh, yeah. poorly and you're out of there. You know, talking about your solo debut back in 1982, when when ignition failed to ignite, as you know, some may have anticipated it would. Were you even a little bit nervous that this was your shot and it was gone, or or? Yeah, I did. I went back to London. I quit. At that point, I quit. They dragged me back after the babies. I got that cottage, and and I was living with my girlfriend. After ignition failed, I went back to England, got married, and had an unlisted number. I didn't want anyone to find me. I was living in the countryside. I was happy. Wow. Didn't want to know about it anymore. I mean, Chrysalis were a very painful label to be on. And uh, we had a major radio success with, with Change. And they just blew it. But they blew the babies, you know. So it was kind of like, all right, that's how it goes, you know. I, I gave it my best shot. Sure. I was done. So, uh, uh, Rough and Tumble, you know, from, from interviews that I've read from you and, you know, video pieces I've seen, I, I get a sense listening to you talk about this record, that you're as excited about this album as anything, maybe since No Breaks. Uh, is that is that a fair statement? Yeah. It was made in the same way. It was made very quickly. It all came together as things can only come together once in a lifetime. It, it just came out of nowhere. And there was just an incredible amount of energy all keyed up and ready to go. You could have put me in a room with a polka band and I'd have written your hit. <laughs> It, I couldn't fail. It's wow. like when you, you pull the trigger on a gun and you know you're going to hit the target. Yep. You could turn the lights out. You could turn around and shoot through a mirror, and you know you're going to hit the bullseye. It was like that. It was like dancing when the music's great. You could not fail, and failing wasn't an option. 
I used to say, because I don't have plan B. I've lived my life like I don't have plan B. <laughs> and sometimes it's got me into some really wild situations. But I would, I would I'd recommend if you're serious about what you're doing, never make plans for failure. You, bet. you don't do that when you're writing songs. You don't hedge your bet, you know. I mean, in bad English, I'd be writing about stuff and I'd be going, you can't write that. And I think, oh, fucking Christ. You know, it's like, oh, Jesus. The most mundane, boring people, you know. <laughs> I mean, you try and hit the bullseye. And people are waiting for that, you know. That's why people like folk music and blues music. That's why they listen to Dylan. Somebody somewhere wants some truth. It's like being hungry or something. Sure. People want to know what's going on. When they read the front of the New York Times, they don't want to know about the football. They want to know what's going on. And uh, when they turn the radio on, I still believe that people want to know what's going on, even if it's in a really primal way, which is like, you know, rhythms and key changes and instrumentation. That can inform your spirit just as much as a phil philosophical moment in a song. Absolutely. So it's trying to cross that bridge and go into no man's land. And you can do it with pop music, blues music, folk music, rock and roll. It doesn't matter what kind of music you're doing it in. You talk in a language that is the currency of truth. It's rock and roll. So tell me what's different about this record that has captured your passion in such a unique way. I mean, you well, know, the recording, I, I think. The recording, I, it didn't really matter what the songs were. It was, just, it was all Spartan, all stripped down. I sang a lot of it live. I was writing in the studio. I was writing the night before. We wrote the track Rough and Tumble the day before in the rehearsal. A four-hour rehearsal that we had to learn six songs before we went in to cut the second half of the record. And we actually wrote Rough and Tumble that afternoon, musically. I didn't have the title or the words yet, but I had the melody. But it was, it was that fast. I would go home, light a cigarette, sit in the dark, put the light on, start writing lyrics. You know, it was like it was with me all the time. I trusted in that thing where you close your eyes and just walk forward. The same thing I did with Missing You. The same kind of philosophy was applied to this entire record. You know? Wow. Well, yeah, well, maybe not. You know, either mean it or you don't. It's such a business now that people sit there chewing pencils, writing on legal papers, of course. wondering what's going to sell. I don't care what's going to sell. You know, I, I write these songs. I write for myself first, and then I put it together to make a record. You know, but I write... I try and describe things that are going on in my world, and I, I guess, you know, everybody's trying to find out what's going on. It's been interesting to see how much attention the record's got. I'm very, very touched by it, very moved by it. You know, I didn't expect that. I just thought we'd get three or four more gigs out of it. I have no expectation. I love it. I show up, I play. It's the most fun you can have. It's absolutely unbelievable. You, t you touched on this, but talk to me about being an artist and a musician in this day. I mean, in this strange new world of of digital music and you know all of this exciting technology. I mean, you know the perce the perception I think is that it's easier than ever to do what you do. But I wonder if, in actual fact, it's not tougher than ever to be a musician and to make your music really stand out. Everybody's making records because they can with a computer, and everybody can get it onto iTunes. So there's a billion bands out there. Some of them are just doing it before they go back to college. Some of them are going to make a life out of it, same as always. But instead of having to fight and struggle and and beat down those to get a record deal, now you can just make music. I think that's great. I really do, because the record companies had a stranglehold on what was released. 
and they could censure records and they could dictate terms to artists. I mean, I've actually walked out of record deals and walked out of studios because some guy in a suit is telling me that he knows more than I do about songwriting. Or that he doesn't hear a single. Oh, yeah, exactly. A&R stands for always wrong. Remember that? <laughs> I love that. Somebody told me that once years ago. But anyway, you know, but it's a, it's a level playing field. And I, and I must say that I think that's the coolest thing in the world. If it was up to me, I'd just give it away. Enough. If you want it, here it is. You know, wow. it's music. You know, back in medieval times, you didn't charge 10 shillings to, to, to play a piece of music. <laughs> you didn't, did you? You didn't. It isn't, you know, I've, I've written this great song, Give Me a Dollar. You know, it's nothing to do with that. You'd sing it, and people around the campfire would join in. Or gather around the campfire and pay me $10, and I'll, you know, I'll tell you a Well, story. yeah, no, you know, we've, there's two shows a night. You bet. I don't know. <laughs> it would just, it would certainly simplify everything if everybody just got on with just giving it away. And, you know, you play live, and then people pay to come and see you, and you can make a living doing that and pay the band, and you, know, you still make a lot of money. I really don't know if the musicians are that concerned with making money. I think it's a record company still and the lawyers. Sure. They're trying to turn a profit out of music. Maybe that's naive. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, in some ways it speaks to uh, the pure place inside yourself that, that all of this springs forth from. Yeah, well, it's ephemeral. Life is. Music is. Everything's passing by so fast. And instead of focusing on this sort of beautiful vision of, of sonic prayer, you know, whatever it is, the blues, you know, black music, country and western, Hank Williams, Etta James, you know, all these wonderful artists, you know, it's about trying to turn a profit. I mean, every time somebody plays my record on the radio, I make money. And that's not bad. I could be laying in bed reading a book, watching TV, and I'm still making money. So... <laughs> Because of that, you know, you'd wonder why people are so concerned about how to squeeze the last nickel out of somebody's record. I mean, it's, it's obviously the business, man. So do you have a favorite track on this record? Let me see now. I like them all. I, I haven't listened to it for a while. It makes me nervous. When I was mixing it and in the studio and sequencing it, I, uh, I listened to it quite a bit. But I suppose next week I'll listen to something that I haven't heard for a couple of weeks, so I'll, I'll like that best. If you ever get lonely, it's pretty great. I don't know. Oh, yeah, Further the Sky. I didn't write that. Alison suggested that. Alison Krauss. I didn't write that. Gabe Dixon wrote that. Because I didn't write it, it was a real adventure singing it. You know, it was kind of like strange. Sure. I usually write everything I sing. But... You know, it, was, it had a lot of meaning to me, Alison, and I thought it was beautiful. You know, it's funny you mentioned Alison. You know, four years ago, you teamed up with her to kind of reinvent Missing You and and bring it to a whole new audience that may have never even heard your name before. I mean, right. she's widely regarded as one of the finest performers ever. I mean, literally a human angel. What must yeah. it be like to work with someone of that extraordinary caliber? She's the real thing. You know, I talked to her last night. She's very quiet and dry and says these things that make you smile <laughs> and she's the real thing it's been an interesting association it's been a great relief to me to spend time with somebody that actually gets it i always loved bluegrass and i think she's the highest note i can think of in country music but she's not really country she's something else 
you know, she's, you know, something, when you think of her range, I mean, you know, she can sing straight up country, she can sing straight up bluegrass, and then you hear something like her collaboration with Robert Plant, which is just otherworldly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing the range of, of notes that she can hit. Uh, oh, I've know. heard her do, um, cameo songs. I've heard her sing Word Up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Word Up. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> You know, Alex and you go, oh, yeah, right, that's, that's good. Shake your booty. She can sing that pretty well, too. <laughs> you know, I, I think she can literally take any song and make it her own and make it distinctly her, which is a pretty rare Well, time. absolutely. I think so. The Funkadelics, you name it, she can give it a good time. <laughs> uh, she's like that, though. She's got that's a hilarious. <laughs> she's really, uh, she's got quite a voice. So I assume you're touring behind Rough and Tumble. Oh, yeah. We've been on the road since we came out. We've been doing like two or three gigs a week, gig here, gig there. We go to Europe in uh, two weeks for a three-week club tour. It's doing quite well over there. So I don't know. I just signed on. I just thought, well, you know, I don't want to be touring like this in five years. And I'm really enjoying it. So I've just bought myself some really decent luggage, a couple of really good guitars. <laughs> And some travel shampoo, you know. I mean, it's kind of like I've just decided to surrender to it. Just sure. I enjoy it more than anything I can think of. And I just want to go and do it now and play. I don't care if we're playing on the back of a truck or some big festival or some club in Hamburg. I just want to go and play. I think that's a great time, you know. Talk to me about touring now at 58 versus, you know, being on the road when you were 20 or 25. I mean, do you, do you appreciate it more now? No, because then... I was actually in awe of like going into Detroit or Houston, New York City, San Francisco. These places were myths to me. They were dreams. And all the clothes I was wearing were like either made for me or I got them in London and everything is full on. You look the part, you are the part, and you open your mouth and sing the part. You know, you are it and it's you. Now, it's, I've got a lifetime of experience. I heard some of the older tapes of me singing when I was a kid, and I think it's, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty amazed by it, the choices that I make musically. Now I'm probably a better singer, and I can hit higher notes. But um, yeah, I still find it interesting, because I don't know what's coming next. We don't have. It's never the same thing twice. It's never, I never sing it exactly like the record. Of course. And if the guitar player goes off, then there he goes, you know. I still play it like it's music. I think I've returned to what I loved when I was 17. You know, you're well into your third decade of consistent success in a, in a fucking tough business. I mean, is there a secret to staying relevant in your profession, in your industry? Well, I'm stubborn. And I think I know the difference. I know when something is phony and I won't compromise and also like I said there's no plan B that's for sissies you got to really live it and be ready to fight for it and people will come into your world and try and I don't want to get too dark there but you have to just just be true so what's on the horizon for John Wade what's coming down the pike second cup of coffee (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I'm going to uh, I'm going to where am I going? Washington for two unplugged days on Thursday. We're playing Friday and Saturday. Then we come back home for like four days. Then I go to Wisconsin, 
and then I fly from there to Europe, to Munich, to do the European tour. So, you know, just playing. The new single comes out, goes to radio this week. So, a lot of things happening, really. Well, I tell you what, I've been a fan of yours for about as long as I've known what music was, and, and I, this oh. was a great thrill speaking with you this morning. I really appreciate you taking some time oh, to gab with me. God bless you. Thank you much, God bless you. Well, I'll see you down the road, I hope. Uh, thank you very much, sir. And I want to say thanks one more time to Mr. John Waite. His new album, Rough and Tumble, is in stores now and can also be downloaded right alongside a podcast version of this very show from iTunes. Coming right back with Lorena Garcia, everybody. Hang tight. Sounds like a good time Going down at the other end You got a new life And a new love And a whole new set of friends And I am listening Do you expect me to pretend That I don't love you I don't love you But if you ever get lost Brandon's Buzz Guys, and if you're like me, Sunday nights lately are all about NBC's new reality competition series, America's Next Great Restaurant, which has regular folks fighting for the chance to fulfill their dreams and open up three stores in a new chain of fast, casual eateries. The series wraps up this coming Sunday evening, May 1st, as the final three contestants go head-to-head for this chance of a lifetime. And a couple of days ago, I went straight to the fabulous, fascinating Lorena Garcia, who is one of the investors on this endeavor, and who is one of the four judges helping to choose the ultimate winner for an exclusive sneak peek. It's such a thrill to speak with you. I'm a big fan of this show. I want to tell you, you're, you're kind of the enigma of this show to me. I mean, you know, Bobby Flay, everybody knows him, and, you know, Steve is Chipotle, and I eat at Chipotle no less than once a week. And, you know, Curtis is really going strong in, in last year or so, in this country anyway. And But, you know, comparatively, we know very little about you, and I want I want you to... Uh, tell me who you are and what you do, if you would. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, I've, I've done so much. I'm, I'm mostly, most of my career has been directed to the Hispanic community here in the United States. I have okay. uh, about three uh, different cooking shows uh, that's running out through Latin America. I've been at Staple in Univision, which is the largest Hispanic television network in the United States. I've been sure. working there for many, many years. At the same time, I have many appearances in CNN and uh, The Big Exclusive and Top Chef. So I've been around in terms of what it is my career as a chef. I own uh, my, a chain of restaurants that is called Lorena Garcia Cocina. It's, it's dedicated to the airport starting in Miami, which we already opened, going to Dallas, then uh, Atlanta and New York. I also have my first cookbook that is coming in September. I have my production studios here in Miami. I have a program that is called Big Chef Hero Chef in which I go to the schools and teach children how to cook and eat healthier along with their families. 
So I, I do a lot in terms of being a restaurateur, being an entrepreneur, being a chef. I'm definitely a, a line chef. I've been in my restaurants cooking uh, for about 10 to 15 years. So it is, a, it is a very dedicated career that I have, uh, you know, definitely married to for many years. And so how did you get involved with this show? You know what? I was presented the idea uh, to be one of the investors, uh, along with Bobby Curtis and, and Steve, and, and, and as you said, this is a great group of professionals, and, and I couldn't be in a, in, a, in, a better, in a better company to be an investor Absolutely. with them. So, when yeah, when I heard the opportunity, I jumped right into it. I, I identify myself uh, as a chef that, you know, of international cuisine, that it has to be healthy, it has to be, you know, great, good flavors. I, I have the hands of Latin cuisine in, in my style, so I think that that was something that it was an asset to the group, you know, being different. And, and all of us, we bring something different to the table, but Absolutely. at the end no of the day, I, th I think it's very valuable to the winner of this competition. And has this turned out the way you expected it to or wanted it to? It has. Let me tell you, I, I was looking for the passion in, in the contestants. I was looking for that personality that is needed in order to carry out three restaurants. Let me tell you, it's not an easy task, but uh, if you do it well, if you have the passion and the commitment, you know, it can represent a lifetime career uh, for the winner. So being able to give that uh, opportunity in, in, in the entire process, it was uh, an amazing, amazing thing. I, I love the three concepts that are about to enter into the finale. I think that each one of them brings something different to the table, but at the end of the day, it has to be great food and that personality, that personality that I'm looking for that is going to be able to carry this because, again, it gives you great gratification and satisfaction, but at the same time, it's very dedicated and you need a person that is going to, you know, put their chest in it and, and roll no with question. it. No question. Uh, talk to me about the restaurant business. You know, my day job is managing my uncle's catering company, and we set up, you know, booths at fairs and festivals around the area here, and we sell we sell food concession style, and you know he always says that the most important thing in that milieu is location, location, location. What's the most important ingredient in the restaurant business? Is it location? Is it great food? Is it employees? Is it some other intangible? What's the what's the most uh, pivotal thing? If you ask me, they're all at the same level. Your location, because you need the people walking into your restaurant. So that is you bet, key. no question. But then, if you have people walking into your restaurant or into your booth or into your food truck, but then you don't have the food, then you fall off. Then if you don't have the service, then you fall off. So it is very important that you have great food. The location is very important because you need those customers. And, you know, in terms of service, it has to be there. So it is, I think, equally very important. And that's why the restaurant business is so hard and so difficult because being able to hit the three in the best possible way is a challenge. But if possible, and if you do it right, and if you reach great food, great location and great service, let me tell you, you have a winner and it can last for years. So it's definitely a life-changing opportunity if you do it well. You know, I'm curious about your relationship with the, with the, the other judges slash investors on this show because you're all very – you know, you're all very smart, very shrewd, very passionate people with very strong opinions. What can you tell me about what we haven't seen on screen? I mean, have you gotten along okay? <laughs> well, we had tons of disagreements in the delivery, uh, in the suite, in the investor suite, but, you know, I love Curtis, Steve, and, and Bobby. I mean, we are actually great friends uh, as of right now, and that is something that I will always value from the show. But let me tell you, we're very different. We bring, uh, you know, different styles and tons of experience to the table. So I think that us combined, when we definitely come to an agreement, it, it is the best one. And, and in terms of mentoring, uh, let me tell you, uh, it is great because you have different backgrounds. 
that at the end of the day, it is so valuable for your restaurant. You want to be able to bring all the experiences that we bring throughout the years and, and also our mistakes because, you know, through the process, you also learn from your mistakes. So Absolutely. bringing all that to the table to these contestants, I mean, it's a great asset for them. And, and that is the key that the contestants are able to grab these advices, apply them to their concept and being able to grow with it without losing themselves in the process. So it is very important to find, you know, that great balance. And I think that these three contestants have a completely different concepts, but at the same time, great, great business ideas. So let's see what happens. Sure. You know, I tell you what's funny, and I speak from experience, in this particular environment, I think that in some ways you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Absolutely. Let me tell you that you know, I, have, I have made my fair share of, of mistakes and I have learned from them. <laughs> and believe me, you know, but that's, that's a process. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you yeah. have to in order to recognize your weaknesses, in order to grow and, and to yeah. apply them. And I think that's actually something very, very honorable about it. So I'm all for it. And that, I, I wouldn't be who I am today if I wouldn't make those mistakes. <laughs> so, you know, happy for it. So I know you can't divulge with the winner here, but give me your thoughts on the final three contestants. I mean, do you think the right three people made it to the finale? Yes, I definitely do. I definitely do that we have the three best personalities. It was very hard for me to see Stephanie go for different reasons. She's an attorney as I am. She has the idea of healthy cuisine, which um, I was all about it. So I was a very big champion of her in the suite. But at the end of the day, personality-wise, she wasn't able to carry her idea and her concept well. So, you know, it was impossible for us to invest on her concept. Joey with meatballs, Brooklyn Meatball Company, he has a great meatball if he carries it well. As you know, key right now, you know, you're going to see them in the restaurants to see how they manage their employees, how they take the flow of the restaurant, how they take our advice. For Spice Coast with Sadir, he has a very unique uh, profile of flavors with Indian cuisine. He's a businessman, but at the, at the end of the day, the restaurant business is a very different type of business as, as you know, as he's being a, a sales executive. So it will be interesting to see him. German oh. soul food, I have never tasted such a great way of cooking a healthy soul food. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great idea. And at the same time, he's a great team player. So he's been Absolutely. the winner in most of the contests in terms of the borders and, and the focus groups that we bring to the table. So, again, you know, they have their hits, they have their miss, but they're growing, and I think that definitely we have a very, very strong concept for the finale. So it's going to be up to us, you know, in the switch to see who's going to be the winner. It's going to be a tough one this week. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I was rooting for the grilled cheese guy. I, I live here in Austin, Texas, and we have a restaurant called Ched's, which is essentially what that guy was doing, and, you know, various versions of a grilled cheese sandwich. And you know, yes. when 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 Bobby or Curtis, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said that he had yet to put a great sandwich in front of them. All I could think was, how do you screw up a, a grilled cheese sandwich? Exactly. And let me tell you, I am a fan. <laughs> I prefer a grilled cheese than a burger. Imagine how much of a fan I am. And I love burgers. <laughs> oh, how much of a fan I am of grilled cheese. And I fought for him, like you have an idea, but he plateaued. He wasn't able to grow with the concept, so, you know, he left me with no ammunition to defend him. So, at the end of the day, I got outvoted. <laughs> so, are we going to be happy with how this all resolves itself? I think so. I am extremely excited. Let me tell you, I have tasted the food. We, you know, we have been, you know, Bobby, Curtis, Steve, we have been directly watching the menu and making sure that the food is there. Let me tell you, I cannot wait for, you know, the very next day, go to, to all the restaurants. Uh, I'm going to be traveling that week, you know, to New York, to Minneapolis, to L.A., sure. and being there and, and see uh, the actual restaurant operating. So I cannot wait. 
And thanks so much to the terrific Lorena Garcia. You can check out the finale of America's Next Great Restaurant this coming Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific on NBC. Check your listings. And that's a wrap for Brandon's Buzz, guys. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. If you're listening, you already know. But in case you don't, three places online to find Brandon's Buzz. Blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That's B-L-O-G-T-A-L-K radio.com, all one word. Uh, that's really his home base for the show. From there, you can listen to the show. You can see what's coming on the show. You can listen to old episodes of the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at brandonsbuzz.com, my blog. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, that takes you to a page with every single episode of this show archived for your convenience. This is episode number 79, this and all previous 78, all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. Check it out. Uh, you can also find me at iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes right next to John Waite. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section, click on my logo. From there, you can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm, I'm, on, I'm all over the Internet. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I swear to you, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate everybody finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) If you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.